you would, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 39. Psalm 39. We are, as most of you know, slowly, methodically, just working our way through the Psalter of Israel. And you may not know that there are five books, five separate sections of the book of Psalms. And the first section of the Psalms is Psalms 1 to 41. Psalms 1 to 41. And so we are really close to finishing the first section of the book of Psalms. They are arranged, and frankly, many believe that they are arranged with very, very intended purpose, not arbitrary in any way. And there are various theories about the arrangement of the Psalms, and some of those theories, of course, are not in alignment with each other, but the bottom line is that most everyone agrees that in the various sections there are five total, and certainly Psalms 1 to 41 do fit a marvelous pattern, and we find ourselves in Psalm 39, and we'll continue to work our way through them. Let's read Psalm 39 tonight. You follow along as I read Psalm 39. To the choir master, to Jedithon, a psalm of David. I said I will guard my ways, that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle, so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent, I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned, then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely nothing, surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. As part of the wisdom of, literature of the Old Testament, 
we are instructed either positively or negatively to warn ourselves or to be warned about the idea that our life is but a vapor. You just heard our brother read James chapter 4, which says explicitly that our our life is a vapor, our life is a mist, it's a here today and gone tomorrow. It so quickly comes and then it is, of course, so quickly gone. The preacher, for instance, Solomon, Solomon of old in the book of Ecclesiastes, starts at, uh, starts at chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes by saying these declarative words, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but earth remains forever. Particularly that phrase of the preacher, a generation goes and a generation comes. There's a cycle to it, isn't it? People live, people die. Generations come and generations go. And before you know it, your life is over and it's gone. It moves by so fast, this life that we live. Even Moses declared it so in Psalm 90. Listen to what he says. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Now, this is not, I don't think, intended to uh, make us eternally sad. I don't think it's designed to uh, make us see life as foreboding and dark and dreary. I don't think so at all. I just think that the Bible, being the most honest book there is, tells us over and over and over again what is true and what is true about life. And what is true about life's vanities, and what is true about life's time frame, and what is true about how long we're here, and what is true about God, and what is true about our meeting Him in this short life that we live upon our death. It's just true. It's just a fact. And even in our text tonight, we read this in Psalm 39, verses 4, 5, and 6. O Lord... Make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Selah, which means pause, think about it, ponder. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Now, if you want, you could see passages like this from 
Ecclesiastes and Psalm 90 and Psalm 39 and several other places and assume, well, that's quite negative. Uh, That's not encouraging. That's not something that we ought to focus on. But you know, that same preacher said in the book of Ecclesiastes that it's better to go to a place of mourning than a place of feasting. Why? Doesn't that sound like the opposite of what we should think? Uh, Don't you want to go to a place where people are happy and there's joy and there's excitement and there's thrill that some kind of celebration is going on? Well, it may seem that way. But if you go to a place of mourning, like a funeral, what does it motivate you to do? Well, what it should motivate you to do is to think about death. And to think about what's going to happen after this life is over. And it may even challenge us to think about our own mortality, including especially our short lifespan. As I've said before, we're all going to die. We're all going to come to a place where our life is going to be cut short, as they say, or at least in terms of our desire. We would otherwise think that, especially with loved ones and for all of the joys of life, that we would want to just live and live and live. And then when we choose, then we die. The Bible is so much more ruthlessly and plainly focusing our lives on the truth. You say ruthless? Well, ruthless in this sense, the honesty of God telling us the truth about the here and the hereafter is precisely what we need. That's what we need. So when you and I contemplate the brevity and the fragility of life, we should so quickly realize that it is indeed exactly what the Bible says, so fleeting, so quick. King David is right. To ask Yahweh to allow him to know, to understand that his life is so swiftly ending and therefore we should, in comparison with God's own existence, understand that we as men and women on this earth are here and then gone. It's no wonder that David asks God to give him a sense of the measure of his days. You know what he's saying by that? He's saying in essence something like this, give me some perspective, God. Give me some perspective about how short my life really is and what choices I'm making in light of this quick beginning and this speedy departure. It's it's not ruthless, really. If you think about that particular term in the worst form, the worst way, the worst connotation, let's say not ruthlessness per se, but realism. Realism, just being realistic, being honest. And this, my friends, is largely what I believe Psalm 39 is about. It's a call to ponder life, especially a life which acknowledges the truth about God, the truth about our tongues, what we say to other people, the truth about sin, the the truth about the discipline for that sin, the truth about confession, the truth about prayer, and the truth about the end of our days. If you ask me what Psalm 39 is teaching us in simple terms, it is this. Four key principles. Be careful. Be clear. 
be contrite, and be consistent. That's what it's telling us. Be careful, be clear, be contrite, and be consistent. Let's look at the first one. Be careful. Now, if I were to expand on that and not make it such a simple idea, it would be, well, be careful for what? Here it is. Be careful who and how you talk about life's difficulties. Be careful. Be careful who and how you talk about with life's difficulties. Look back at Psalm 39, beginning there in verse 1. It says, To the choir master, and we assume the choir master who is listed here is Jedithan. Jedithan. And this superscription says it's a psalm of David, and we take it as that, one of David's psalms. And here's what he has to say. I said, David speaking, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Now, what in the world does he mean? What's he talking about? What's he, what's he truly saying? Well, it's clear to us that in the context of this psalm, David is being chastised by the Lord due to his sin. I mean, that's clear from verses 8 to 11, which we'll get to in a moment. There's something that David is wrestling with, just like if you remember Psalm 38, where it is one of those psalms that we call a penitential psalm. psalm. He's a penitent. He's a sinner, and he's asking God for forgiveness. And there are several of those, about seven, that are very directly in almost every verse, a penitential psalm. Uh, This is maybe sort of a lament psalm with a bit of uh, penitential remorse in in the middle part of it, verses 8 and 11. But that seems to dominate the actuality of the psalm uh, all over the place. And this is the context. So we assume that in verses 1, 2, and 3, David is specifically choosing to withhold his words of questioning. Which, of course, as you know, in so many of the Psalms of David, he sometimes says something like this, Why, Lord? Why is this happening? Why is this happening to me? What's going on? I don't understand. And yet, I want you to notice why David, according to Psalm 39, 1, 2, and 3, refrains from doing that in this case. And did you see it? The reason why he says, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth. I will guard, I will guard with a muzzle. And then this, here's the key, here's the clue. So long as the wicked are in my presence. This is actually turning into something for which David is to be commended. You say, how so? Well, If the wicked, the enemies of God, are in David's presence and he speaks of a kind of honesty about what God is doing and maybe out of that honesty it appears as though David is actually expressing a complaint against God. He's 
certainly got something burning within him, doesn't he? Because he says in verse 2, I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail and my distress grew worse. He's, he's got something, as they say in the South, in his craw. He's got something in the, the pit of his stomach. He's, he's actually at a boiling point. He says in verse 3, My heart became hot within me as I mused, as I thought about things, as I continued to, to go through the, the thinking process, the fire burned. It, it kindled even more then I spoke with my tongue. So it's not going to go away. I mean, even in the midst of David's questions, including his asking out loud, possibly, I assume, and so might you, that he's going to ask out loud about the why of God's chastisement, about the situation, whatever it may be, that David finds himself. And uh, maybe he might even say, Are you sure? Is this best? It may not even be that he's saying, is this right? But maybe sometimes in our honesty with God, we say, is it best right now? Is this the right course? Is this the right time? And it's not as though we're completely objecting to what God is doing, especially when we know we have issues in our lives for which the Lord needs to deal. But David, if you notice here, is to be very, very careful how he represents God to an unbelieving world. And he's being very careful with his words. That's commendable, isn't it? We don't want to air the the dirty laundry of our sin in such a way to the unbelieving world that it looks like not only a complaint, but maybe we ourselves, even as human beings, have a judgment against the Almighty. What a commitment David has to watching his words and seeking to preserve the reputation of his God before this unbelieving society. Now, please notice how he does this. I said a moment ago, he, he retorts, I will guard or keep watch. I will guard my ways, my, my actions. And I think in this particular context, the action of what I may be saying with my tongue, that I may not sin with my tongue. That's very commendable. I will guard. Again, I will keep watch over my mouth, even with a a muzzle. I need to restrain my words. They're they're boiling up. It's It's like a lit fuse. And I want to do what I can to put finger and thumb together uh, to sort of snuff out the fuse before I'm going to say something not only that I would regret, but that the watching world would say, see there, see there, is that the kind of God you serve? David, you make it sound like this particular God that you say you love on the one hand is actually on the other hand a God who's arbitrary and capricious. He says, well, I'm going to put a muzzle on my mouth so long as the wicked are in my presence. Do you remember that David was not only the the subject, but so were so many other history points 
in the history of Israel where there were those naysayers of Israel's God who kept saying things like, where is your God? Your God can't do anything. Your God's not going to help you win in battle. And these naysayers, uh, they were just trying to needle and, and egg on the people of God to not only abandon their God, but to do the same thing, to begin to criticize the God of Israel as though he was too puny or unable or maybe even wasn't there at all to defend them. You want, you and I, bringing it into our own context now, you want, and so do I, even in an hour of severe discipline, whatever that severe discipline may be, to ensure that God is not mocked by unbelievers before they hear you saying things that could, even in the slightest, bring a reproach upon the sinless, perfect character of our God. No, the problem is me and my sin, not the Lord. Do you remember what the psalmist in Psalm 1 We don't know if it's David or not, but do you remember what the psalmist said he didn't want to do in unbelievers' presences? I don't want to walk in the counsel of the wicked. I don't want to stand in the way of sinners. I don't want to sit in the seat of scoffers, but I want my delight to be in the law of the Lord so that I can meditate upon it day and night. Well, maybe you and I don't always have a choice about the wicked being in our presence, and when they are in our territory, be careful. Be careful how we talk to them. Be careful what we talk about. And above all things, do not impugn the character of God, especially when you're under discipline. Do you remember something close to a question about what God was doing, especially with the wicked, by Asaph in Psalm 73. You probably know this particular psalm so very well. Asaph was asking the question, but what about the wicked? He says in verse 3, I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death, Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garden garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts through the earth. I mean, maybe he's almost falling into such a trap. Verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Careful, careful. Asaph, careful. We all have to be careful. And you know, I think not only in discipline for sin, but also in times of suffering or tribulation or persecution, some of us may steer 
far too close to a mentality that says, I don't like what you're doing. I don't like the time of it. I don't like the wisdom of it. I question the propriety of it. And I'm going to hold you accountable because of it. Why? Because it's not my plan if I were to plan all things. All of us can go through that. That's why I think the book of Proverbs, all 31 chapters, so many times in that marvelous book, it says, watch your tongue, watch your mouth, be careful with your lips, don't sin against God by questioning Him in a way that especially would make unbelievers assume that that's not the kind of God they want to serve. So what do I do then? Listen to David's words in verses 2 and 3. I was mute and silent. I held my tongue. I held my peace. This may even be where that phrase came originally. I held my peace. But of course he says, I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me as I mused. That's, that's to think. You know, when we put the A in front of that word, amusement, that means the lack of thinking. I want to be entertained. I want to be amused. I don't want to think. And so he says the opposite. I mused. The fire burned, and I spoke with my tongue. I mean, he's got a heavy heart, doesn't he? He's got a really heavy heart. And so he did speak. You say, did he, did he go against what he said he wasn't going to do? No, because he does say in verse 3, I spoke with my tongue. But who did he speak to? Look at verse 4. He spoke to God. He didn't speak to the wicked. He didn't, he didn't drag God down in the mud. He didn't trounce the Almighty. He spoke, and He spoke to the one to whom He should have spoken. And if you want a second principle, not only be careful, but be clear. Be clear. And if I expanded that, it would be this. Be clear about the true condition of man's life. Mankind's living. Be, be clear about the true condition of man's life. And so, if he spoke, what did David speak to the Lord? Here's what he said. O Lord. And you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D? That's the name Yahweh. Yahweh. Best we could come in our thought of how God's name is to be pronounced. Yahweh. O Yahweh. Here's what he says, and he goes right to the Lord himself, right to God, right to Yahweh. Make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you, surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Selah. Ponder. Pause. Think. Muse. And then after you've done that, sing again. 
So what's he saying? Where, where do you go when you want to inquire about life's troubling circumstances? I mean, it's not as though you're under some kind of disciplinary action, you're under correction, you're under rebuke, and you may not always know the extent of it, you may not always know the reasons for it, sometimes you do, of course, but when life is hard and circumstances are incredibly taxing and difficult, what do you do? How do you speak about troubling circumstances? Well, David says, I don't go to the unbelievers and I don't trounce my God in front of them. So David's answer is this. If you're assuming that part of your answer might be a complaint against God for his dealing with you, and if this further means that there's a possibility, maybe even a probability, that God could be indicted as either unloving or unwise in his dealing with you, or so your presumption may be, or perhaps even further, that God might very well be arbitrary or capriciously punishing you, perhaps so unfairly or so you think, that you better be first sure about who you're talking about and who it is you're lodging that complaint before in the first place. And you certainly don't go to unbelievers. And even if you thought all of those things, which you shouldn't, And even if you had this idea of stepping into the Almighty's presence and you've got this burning in your soul to ask questions of God the Almighty, then the thing you've got to do first and foremost is to be clear about who He is and about who we are. You've got to be clear about that. And David is clear, O Lord... Make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Now, the first thing that I pick up about that is that David understands full well that he's not the creator. Only God is. Because he's actually talking to the one who created him and who made his days and who has fashioned and shaped the very number of them. And he's acknowledging that in a conversation with God, David wants to be the very first one to say, I know how fleeting my life is. I, 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 I know that. I, I understand that. And then he goes on to say, Behold, you have made my days a few hand breadths. What is a hand breadth? You know what a hand breadth is? What's the breadth of your hand? Well, if you put your four fingers together... You got about three inches, and he says, in life's days, I've got a few of those. And a few, if it's uh, maybe two or three, David's saying, I've got about nine inches of life. That's what he's saying. I've got a little time. So little time. And then he acknowledges And my lifetime is nothing before you. I mean, nothing in comparison. I've got nine inches. You have eternity. I'm nothing. You're everything. Surely, he says, all mankind stands as a what? A mere breath. I mean, in comparison with God, God is eternal. God will will never end. And as for me, 
by way of comparison, here's my life. (sighs) That was it. The breath. That's the total. That's the sum. No wonder. Selah. Think. Ponder. Put your musings to it. And then he says, Surely my life, surely a man goes about as a shadow. A shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. (laughs) That's so interesting. I mean, surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Who? Who's in turmoil? Man. Mankind. And they're in turmoil for what? For nothing. He has no reason to be. But he thinks he is. And because he thinks he's in turmoil, and even though it's for nothing, uh, for nothing that God did, God's not to be indicted. Man is. So all of this, all of this summary, uh, maybe there's a, a legitimate complaint against God, and maybe there's this possibility, no, maybe even a probability that we could indict him as potentially unloving and unwise, and, and maybe he is this arbitrary, capricious God who comes about to punish me unfairly. No, back up, back up, back up, back up, and think about who I am in his presence. I don't know what I'm thinking. I don't know what I'm saying. And certainly in the unbelieving crowd around me, I better not say any of those things because not only they're not true, but do I want to represent my God in that way to them? No. No. You and I as human beings are the ones who are fleeting. God is sovereign. God is in control. We're not. We are transitory. He's eternal. We are all about caring for ourselves and our wealth and attempting to amass enough either for ourselves or for our loved ones. And then David tells us that there ultimately will be no one who gathers the things we've amassed and who will keep it. That's that's what he says. Do you see it there in verse 6? Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Who's going to keep your stuff? You know, the old line. You've never seen a hearse carrying a U-Haul, have you? I mean, nobody can just gather and amass all this stuff. Who will gather it? Who will keep it? You remember the man in the Gospels who said, I've got all of my produce, all of my material, all of my, my goods and services, and they're growing at such a rapid rate. Here's what I'll do. I'll, I'll build bigger barns to amass all of my stuff. And Jesus says, and God will visit him that very night and say, you fool. Tonight, your soul is required of you. Now who will own what you possess? So, what David tells us is that God, as our Creator, has fashioned us with a lifespan that's equivalent to a few hand breaths. And, and our lifetime is, is nothing in comparison with the Almighty, and we can't even store our wealth for a rainy day. And we're a mere shadow We're a mist, we're a vapor, just like James 4 says.
So be careful and be clear about the important relationship, the most important relationship we have, the one to whom we have to do. Number three, be confessional. Be confessional. Be careful, be clear, and be confessional in your approach to this sovereign God. And this is the heart of it. This is the meat of it. And this is what he says in verses 7 to 11. And now, O Lord, now, Yahweh, for what do I wait? I don't wait for the answers that are going to satisfy me. I'm waiting for you to speak to me with hope. My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. There it is. There's an acknowledgement. There's a confession right there. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. Maybe that's a way of saying, you remember those uh, unbelieving people that uh, I was keeping my mouth muzzled? Some of them are scornful and foolish. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to keep my mouth closed. I'm not going to open my mouth. I'm mute again. And now it's actually for you. I'm going to keep my mouth shut even before you, Lord, because it is you who have done it. Done what? Disciplined me. Corrected me. I can't blame it on anything. I can't blame it on uh, some arbitrary, capricious act of uh, someone for whom I've misjudged and maybe even misrepresented or ill-defined like the God of Israel. And I'm certainly not going to talk to my friends because they'll never give me the right answer, especially these unbelieving friends of mine. No, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go right to God and I'm going to confess to Him because He's the sovereign God and I am going to acknowledge it. And here's what He says, remove your stroke from me. The stroke of what? The stroke of, the stroke of discipline. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. Hostility, not some kind of vengefulness. The the severity of it. The severity of your hand. And when you discipline a man with rebukes for what? Sin. You consume like a moth what is dear to him. What's, What's dear to a moth? His life. His life. What's dear to a man? His life. And when you burn us up over time, you have every right to, in your discipline, in your correction, in your rebukes, surely all mankind is a mere breath. And he says it again. Says it again. And then what comes next? Selah. Think about it. Ponder it. And then sing again. I mean, this is, this is a lament psalm as much as it is David being contrite and, and confessing. And he says, I, I've done wrong. I've, I've sinned against you. And now he finally asks Yahweh to take his strokes, the strokes of the rod, and to take them away from David and to remove his hand of correction and rebuke. But he fully and completely acknowledges that it is mankind who is unworthy of comparison to God Almighty because we're a mere breath. A mere breath. That's, that's what we are. 
like a moth that is consumed by the fire of mischief. So then he says, finally, be consistent. Be consistent. Be careful. Be clear. Be contrite and be consistent. Consistent about what? Be consistent about your requests for peace and grace. And boy, that's really where it should end, right? It's, it's ending in a prayer. And here's the prayer, verses 12 and 13. Hear my prayer, O Yahweh, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. Lord, I'm crying. I'm crying to you, and I'm crying over my sin. Don't withhold your peace. Give me your, your grace, your peace, your mercy. I'm like a man who's a wanderer. He says, I'm a, I'm a sojourner with you, a, a guest. Like all my fathers, what might he mean here? Well, he's a wanderer on the earth. He has no permanent home. And he's looking for refuge, safety, peace, grace, mercy. He says, I'm like a guest. I'm like our fathers. Maybe that's a reference to the patriarchs, the fathers in the wilderness wandering for 40 years. Then he says this. Look away. Turn, turn away from these rebukes and strokes and disciplines and corrections that you've been giving me. Why? Look away so that I may smile again. So that I may have renewed forgiveness and mercy and grace from your good hand. Please allow this to happen, Lord before I shortly depart from this world. And there he says it again. It's a way of talking about the, the brevity of life, the shortness of it all. Let me make sure that I'm forgiven and that I'm right with you in every way before I shortly depart from this. You know, it's, it's talking about keeping short accounts with God and ourselves and others. Keeping short accounts. I mean, this psalm, be careful, be clear, be contrite, be consistent, is oh so very much a psalm to meditate on, isn't it? And to pray back to the Lord himself. So let's do that now. Bow your, your heads with me. Father, we do want to be careful. Careful what we say and to whom we say it, and we by no means are going to impugn your character, this good God who knows what we need, and when we are transgressing against you, you give us correction because we need it to get us back on the right path, so we want to be careful, we must be careful, and we want to be clear. We want to be clear about man's life and the shortness of his ways and the speed with which we're here today and gone 
tomorrow. Which does, of course, mean we need to keep short accounts, especially with you. And we need to be contrite. We need to come to a time of confession so that we uncover the the real reason why the strokes are there, the rebukes, the corrections, the trainings in righteousness. And to be consistent, to be consistent to ask you every day through our cries for your peace, even through our tears. Lord, when we seem far away from you and we're wandering and sojourning and as though we don't have a a place to go and a bed to sleep in, we've been wandering from you, we've been sinning against you, we ask you in our prayers consistently to look away from us in your anger, to look away from us in your whippings of us spiritually so that we may smile again. Lord, we're going to be gone so soon. We want to make sure that we're in your loving fatherly care. So we'd like to consistently ask you for it each and every day, knowing that tomorrow is not promised to us. May it be so for our good and for your glory through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen.